The following audio is from Hope Hill Church. To learn more about Hope Hill Church, please visit hopehillchurch.org. All right, praise God. Let's worship, huh? All right, let's have some slides. We're in John chapter 3. As you know, uh, Pastor John uh, is in a teaching series through the book of John uh, that he anticipates will take the better part of a year. So we are uh, feeding into that um, with him. So from the Gospel of John chapter 16, um, and this is from the um, English Standard Version. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Help us to receive it and grow closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So John 3.16 is one of the favorite verses in all the Bible. It's one that nearly every child or young person uh, memorizes in this Sunday school, in vacation Bible school, uh, in their home, or wherever it may be. Uh, It is one of the most, most loved. But, of course, like all great Bible texts, it is not a standalone verse. It is just plopped in the middle of the Bible for us to read in isolation and try to understand it by itself. But rather, it comes in a context of a conversation or of a series of events. And so, as we discovered in our study last week, Uh, In John chapter 3, Nicodemus, it says a ruler of the Jews, meaning he was a member of the Sanhedrin, came to Jesus uh, asking for information concerning the kingdom of God. Now to put that in context, the first preaching or teaching in the New Testament was actually from John the Baptist. And John the Baptist came on the scene preaching a baptism of repentance. And he told the people, repent and be baptized, for the kingdom of heaven is upon you. When Jesus started preaching, his first sermons started off with pretty much the same words as John the Baptist. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. When he sent out the twelve apostles... He gave them the same instructions. He said, and as you go, preach, the kingdom of God is at hand. And while you're doing that, I want you to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, set the captives free, and preach the kingdom of heaven. So when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Nicodemus has that as a background. We don't know if he had heard Jesus preaching about the kingdom of heaven, if he had been to the baptismal site where John the Baptist was baptizing, 
perhaps that he heard John preaching about the kingdom of heaven, or whether it was some of the 12 disciples. Perhaps he had been where they were preaching, but the pattern was consistent. Jesus and the disciples preached the kingdom of heaven and was back up to support what they were preaching. Uh, They did miracles as they were preaching about the kingdom of heaven. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he said, Master, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God because nobody could do these miracles that you're doing unless God was with him. And Jesus starts right in immediately with the same message that he's been preaching about the kingdom of heaven. Let's go to the next slide, please. So this backs up a little bit in chapter 3 in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And in verse 3, Jesus said, Truly I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. There we go. I had highlighted it on the first slide and didn't want to lose it. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Then, then in, I can't turn my head. Then in verse 5 he says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of the spirit and the water, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It is within that context then that Nicodemus is coming He's asking not only about the miracles, but about this teaching about the kingdom of God. And so Jesus tells him, you can't really understand the kingdom of God from outside of the kingdom. If you want to understand the kingdom of God, you have to be in the kingdom to understand it. You can study something from the outside, and you get an outsider's point of view. But to really understand any organism, any organization, any culture, you have to be in it. You have to be part of it to understand it, to receive it, and to really have that same point of view, that same horizon to understand what's going on within that kingdom. It's within that context, then, that Jesus goes on, after saying this to Nicodemus, to talk about the entrance of how you get into that kingdom of heaven. All right, next slide. Okay. Again, it's it's blotting out my highlights. I may not use highlights in the future. So we're back to 316. And now he's talking about entrance into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of God. And he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. First thing we notice from that is that we are not the first ones to act. We don't just wake up someday and say, oh, I want to be in the kingdom of God. I want to be a Christian. I want to have a relationship with God. The first one to act is God. For God so loved that he gave, that whoever believes might have eternal life. God had to act in love and give 
before we could respond in faith. You cannot respond in faith. You cannot go to God. You cannot take any action towards getting into the kingdom of God until God has first taken the first action. He has to take that action before you can respond in faith. The Bible talks a lot about love. In one passage, a lawyer came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, what does the scripture say? And the lawyer quoted correctly. He says, um, the scripture says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart heart with all your mind with soul your soul and with all your strength and the second is like it you must love your neighbor as yourself Jesus also said by this will all men know that you're my that you're my disciples if you love one another he says love your neighbors and he also said love your enemies word love has a lot of different meanings. We have our own little uh, parables about love. One of them is, we say, love makes you crazy. Now, for those of you over 50, you have to think back to when you were dating and courting, and some of the younger ones here are going through that right now. Love makes you crazy. Or another one is, love makes you blind. Uh... Love makes you throw caution to the wind. You do things when you're in love that you wouldn't ordinarily do. You take chances. You see that other person in a certain light that you might not otherwise see them in or a light that, that other people might not even see them in. But when you're in love, you have a special vision for that person. And you see them as you want to see them, not necessarily the way the world around them sees themselves. I looked in Merriam-Webster this week in the dictionary for a dictionary definition of love, and Webster has multiple definitions, five or six. The first definition in Webster is that love is um, is a strong feeling or emotional attachment. But of course, love is more than that. It's just more than a strong feeling. When, when, when Jesus tells me to love my enemies, certainly he's not telling me that I need to have warm, fuzzy feelings about my enemies, or even about my neighbor. So it must be more than just a strong emotional attachment. So then I read on down the list in Webster. There was three or four other definitions, and then further down the list, it gave another definition, and it said that love is unselfish loyalty. Love is unselfish loyalty. I thought, that's a pretty good description of God's love. When it says that God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that was not just a warm, fuzzy feeling for each of us, but it was unselfish commitment. Love is very often a choice, and God chose 
to send his son on a cross. That's unselfish devotion, unselfish commitment. God chose to do that for each of us. He chose to love us. It may seem a little bit harsh that right in the middle of all of this, when it's talking about love, that it throws in the words uh, condemnation. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then in verse 18 it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. So what does that mean? Too often when we read in the Bible about condemnation, we think about eternal condemnation, about, oh, it says you're going to hell. That isn't really what he's talking about here, because when he says that if you don't believe in Christ, you're condemned already, it's not saying that you're already condemned to hell, that you're going to hell. That may be something in the future. But what he's talking about is the kingdom of God. You're either in the kingdom of God or you're not. And he's drawing a contrast that within the kingdom of God, we are in relationship with God. We are in a love relationship with God. And so Nicodemus wants to understand how the kingdom of God works. And Jesus is saying, to understand how the kingdom of God works, you have to be in the kingdom to understand how it works. To be in relationship with God, you have to be in the kingdom where you have that relationship. And Jesus is simply saying, you're either in the kingdom or you're not. If you're not in the kingdom, you are in a place of condemnation, and all he means there is, you're in a place where you're not in full relationship with God and you're not enjoying the full blessings of God. Now, it's important for us to understand that everyone enjoys God's blessings to some extent. Whether you're saved or not saved, you're still in a place where God is blessing you. Even mean, evil, wicked persons... God is blessing them. They're enjoying some of the fruits of God's blessings. But if you're in the kingdom of God, you're then in relationship with God, and you enjoy the fullness of those blessings based on that relationship. If you're outside of the kingdom of God, God is still blessing you, but you're not in the same relationship, and you're not receiving the full blessings that you would have if you were in the kingdom. You're either in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. But if you're in the kingdom, it is a place of relationships. That love that we talked about, for God so loved the world, comes to full force for those who have accepted the invitation to be loved and to come into the kingdom of God. As we talk about love, God created us to need love. Even non-Christians recognize that. You look at uh, psychology uh, surveys, social surveys, we as a, as, a, as a species, the human species needs love. We are built on that premise. God designed us in such a way that we need the love 
of other people. It's, it's built into us. But sometimes something goes wrong in our lives, whether it's a hurt from the past, whether it's something people have done to us, or for whatever reason. It sometimes arises that even though people want love, they tend to reject and push it away. Do you know someone, or perhaps you've been there yourself, at a time when you've been so hurt and you're so confused about what's going on that you build this barrier around yourself and you won't allow anyone in. And the moment anything comes close to you that even looks like love, sounds like love, smells like love, you got your guard up. Nope, not going to let that happen. You're not going to get that close to me. I have this shield around me. I have this barrier around me. I'm not going to allow you to love me. I'm neither going to receive it nor give it. To be in love, you have to be somewhat vulnerable to the other person. You have to have some level of commitment, some level of submission, some level of vulnerability to the other person in order to receive love and even to give love. And so when you fall in love, one of the things that happens is that you entrust yourself to that other person's care. You let down your guard and you allow them to come in and to become close to you. And you begin to reveal things to them that you wouldn't reveal just to anyone. You get to know each other at a level that most people don't, that you wouldn't know a stranger. Because you've taken down your guard, you've taken down the shield. Pastor Charlie Chilton was the founder of Grace Baptist Church there just down the road from here. And when I used to attend there, almost every Sunday, Pastor Charlie would say, you're in a safe place now. You can take your mask off and be yourself. Because you see, sometimes we wear this mask because we don't want people to see what I'm really like. I have this facade that says, this is the image that I want to protect. This is the image that I want to project. And I don't want anybody to see behind this mask what's really here. But to be in love, you have to take that mask off, and you have to let your guard down, and you have to become vulnerable to that other person. And you cannot really give love unless you're in a place where that you can receive love. So that same mask, that same barrier, that same guard that keeps you from being hurt, likewise keeps you from loving other people as you should. And so when people start drawing close to you and they want to love you and they want to reach out to you, but you've got your guard up and you have your mask on, you have the barrier around you, that shields you from being hurt, but it also shields you from being loved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's God's offering to you. And it's God's invitation. 
as it was to Nicodemus when he said, Nicodemus, I'm trying to explain this to you. I'm trying to explain the kingdom. I'm trying to explain miracles. I'm trying to explain what it means to have a relationship with God. But I can't explain that to you as long as you're outside the kingdom. You have to be willing to come inside the kingdom to have the relationship before you truly understand it. In that verse, when it says, God so loved the world, who's included in that? In the illustration that I shared earlier about the lawyer who comes to Jesus and, and uh, says, what, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, uh, actually the lawyer said, um, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor yourself. The lawyer is still trying to find a little loophole in here, something to debate. So he said, so who is my neighbor? If I have to love my neighbor, tell me who my neighbor is. What he's really asking is, can you narrow the field so I can figure out who I can exclude? He's not really asking, who do I include? Who can I exclude? Who is it that I don't have to love? So if you define who is my neighbor, then I know that everybody outside of that circle I don't have to love them because they're not my neighbor. And so there was lots of things going on in Jewish culture of that day. First of all, they were under the domination of the Romans. The Roman army was occupying their territory. They certainly didn't want to love the Roman, the Roman army. There were Greek businessmen and, tra and traders and travelers coming through constantly. But the Jews did not consider themselves to have any relationship with those people whatsoever. And so there was a real debate. If there's, a, if there's a Roman soldier garrisoned in the house next to me, are they my neighbor and do I have to love them? If the house next on the other side is a boarding house and there are Greeks and foreigners living there, they have no respect for Yahweh God, are they my neighbor? And so those sorts of debates were going on on a regular basis. And so when he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus often taught by parables. And he used parables because they were a safe way to press hot-button issues. And so in response to the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor, Jesus told him the story of the good Samaritan. Samaritans were the least liked, and that's putting it mildly, for the Jewish people of their day. And they had their reasons why they didn't like them. But Jesus gave that parable, and in the parable of the good Samaritan, it isn't the Good Samaritan who received love. The Good Samaritan gave love. So the real importance of that parable is not just go love Samaritans, but it was love like the Samaritan has loved. The Samaritan has taught you how to love. This person that you don't like, that you don't respect, maybe even hate, he has taught you how to love. Go and love like this person has loved. I wonder if Jesus were to give the story of the Good Samaritan today, who would he use as his point of illustration? Probably not Samaritans. Those are not hot-button 
issues for us. We don't live close to Samaria. Most of us don't know any Samaritans. And so that, that would be rather meaningless. But there are many people within our time and within our culture and within our geographic area that we have similar feelings about. And they become hot-button issues when we talk about who should I love? Who does God love? Who's included in this? Carlos Vasquez, Juan Gutierrez, Marilyn Cordova Vale, Felipe Alonso Gomez, Jacqueline Maquin, Wilmer Vasquez, I'm sure I didn't pronounce any of those right, children between the ages of 2 and 16. So God loves the entire world. He certainly must love them. Who are they? Those are children who have died. Those are immigrant children who have died in the detention centers along our southern border. Does God love them? Did he die for them? I got those names from a recent edition of Christianity Today. In fact, it just came out this week in the online version. The, uh, on the online version, there is a video attached to it. They interviewed first a group from Baylor University in their, uh, in their uh, forensic department. There's a group of volunteers at Baylor who go out periodically through that stretch where the immigrants cross the border and they pick up bodies. Many of them have just been left and abandoned. Because when you're running in the packs across there and somebody falls, nobody's going to stop to go back for them. They're left. They're abandoned. Some are pushed off to the side. Some are covered over with sand. They're abandoned. And so a group of volunteers at Baylor has decided these people shouldn't just be left out there. And so they go out and gather up their remains. They run them through the forensic labs. They take notes. And then they give them a decent burial. And they said that the most frequent cause of death is dehydration. And so the next person they interviewed was a rancher. He owns a ranch right there on the border. A couple of years ago, he was out driving across his ranch. And he found a uh, body on his ranch. A person had died from dehydration. So now this rancher goes out periodically, and he has established watering stations along the trail and leaves gallons of water. He said that he has received untold criticism. People write to him from all over the country, criticizing him and saying, don't you know that you're enabling these people who are in the midst of committing crimes you're enabling them and you're encouraging them by establishing these watering stations and giving them water. The farmer said, you know, I, I can't say whether what they're doing is right or wrong, but what I can say is that I'm not willing to stand here and watch people die of thirst. And so I leave them water. 
I heard that story, I couldn't help but think back to the book written by Henry Sheldon in which he quotes the famous line, or he created the line, what would Jesus do? Some of you remember it was very popular recently to have arm bracelets and bumper stickers and T-shirts, what would Jesus do? And I had to ask myself, in this day of all the political turmoil about migration and undocumented aliens, and what would Jesus do? Would he give water to the migrants coming across the border? Or would he, like the hundreds of letters that have poured into this rancher, telling him that what he's doing is wrong? I have to believe that John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish. I believe that they are included in that. And if he was willing to go to the cross for them, I have to believe that he would also give them a cup of water if they were thirsty. I believe that. Who else does God love? I believe he loves the gay and lesbian community. love somebody doesn't mean that you agree with everything they do. But he went to the cross for you and I, even though he knew that we were sinners. When it says that he loves the world, it means the whole world, even those who are not perfect people. And for the rest of you, those of you who are perfect, there's good news for you too. God loves you. You have a perfect life, perfect education, perfect home, perfect relationships, perfect job. Life is perfect. You see my smile. Life is perfect. The good news is that God loves us perfect people also. And yes, he knows that behind the perfection, there's lots of imperfections. He knows that behind that perfect smile, there are hurts, there's anxiety, and there's guilt. He knows that your perfect life isn't as perfect as you may be, may be putting it out there. And so he loves you just the same. And when he went to that cross, he went for each of us regardless of our situation, our circumstances, or how our lives may appear. And so as he did to Nicodemus, he opens the doors to the kingdom. And he says, stop trying to understand everything from the outside. If you really want to understand, you have to come to the inside. Because the inside the kingdom is a relationship with God. It is a new life. As he said, it's so new that it's like being born again, unlike anything you've ever seen before. Come into the kingdom, for God has something great for you. God's word and God the Holy Spirit extends that same invitation to you today to come into the kingdom of God. 
it isn't just some geographic place or some conceptual idea, but it is really a relationship with God. God in you and you in him. And he invites you into that relationship today. How do I know if he's invited you specifically? Because he invited the whole world. And you are part of that. And it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, or who you think you are. The invitation comes to all of us.